This ABA Journal podcast has been brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com. There's a first time for everything, and you've got a trial that's going to go to trial. So how can you represent your client and yourself to the best of your abilities? I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal Podcast. Joining me are Barbara Ashcroft, the Director of the Trial Advocacy Program at Temple University Beasley School of Law, Stephen Hurley, a Madison, Wisconsin lawyer known for his criminal defense work, and Jim McElroy, a civil litigator and sole practitioner in Del Mar, California. I have a question for all of you. First off, what are some of the things they teach you in law school about trying cases that, in hindsight, are just absolutely ridiculous? Jim, do you want to start first? I don't remember being taught a thing in law school about how to try a case. There was, I think, one trial techniques class offered that I I wasn't permitted to take for some reason, Uh, but I don't remember anything that I learned in law school about trying cases. Yeah, and let me just follow up on that. I agree with Jim. Um, Even when I was in law school, unless you took specifically a trial advocacy class, you're learning only theory and substantive law. You're not learning the practical application of law. Here at Temple Law School, we're really huge in trial advocacy, and a lot of the other law schools are now as well. But um, uh, during the time I went to law school, there was no uh, types of skills training. What do you think? One of the things we teach in, or that is taught in trial advocacy today that I think gets my goat is teaching students to ask permission to move around the courtroom. I, I can't tell you how many students who have been through trial advocacy walk into court and say to the judge, uh, Your Honor, may I approach the witness? And as I tell them, you know, anytime you ask the judge for permission, there's a 50-50 chance the answer will be no. And one is better just doing it and having the judge say, not in my courtroom. I think I think you'll find that most judges, as long as one moves around the courtroom with a purpose, uh, they're not going to stop you. I, I think I have a, a little bit of a disagreement on that, Steve, um, only because I think that when a judge will say to you, hey, don't move around my courtroom, then you've sort of gotten spanked in front of the jury, Um, where I think if you ask initially, Your Honor, may I move around the well of the court, uh, there's a better opportunity for you to show the jury and also respect to the judge. Um, so I think we differ a little bit there. Well, but is that you know, part of maybe, is that part of your trial strategy? I mean, if you have a judge that doesn't want you to move without his permission, maybe it's good to get spanked in front of the jury. In a, in, a, in a close case, the lawyer that takes command of the courtroom is the one most likely to win. And I, I would rather have the judge tell me in front of a jury, you know, don't do that, than to be, at least for my initial impression to the jury, uh, to be one of a supplicant. Uh, well, I, I, I think cured, it, it can all be cured by doing homework. That Absolutely. You, you go into the judge's courtroom the week before and you watch what the judge is doing, and you'll know from that. But in the absence of doing homework, which isn't a good thing, in the absence of that, I would prefer to take the chance on the judge saying no. 
most judges will say it in a very kind way, especially to a young lawyer. I would take a middle ground here and say that when approaching a witness, I go either way, but when entering the well, especially in California, I notice, and especially with heightened security around the judge's safety, you know, all that kind of stuff, entering the well, walking toward the judge into the well is something that generally I would encourage a new lawyer to to request permission for. Usually you're handing documents at least in California courts, to the bailiff or someone else who then approaches the bench with the documents. But on the rare occasion where you need to approach the bench with a document or something, uh, I think the better course is to ask the judge if you may approach. And and I think one thing that I want to follow up on, um, what was that Jim that was just talking? That was. Okay, that Jim was just saying is in a world where the younger generation is a lot less formal, I think the formality of the respect to the judge to say, with all the security issues, Your Honor, may I freely walk around the well? I just think that that that's um, at the end of the day, that's going to get young lawyers credibility with the judges, and I think that also is showing the respect for the judge. Now, as with regards to other arguments, I have other ideas. I'm going to jump in for a second, just for perhaps our listeners who don't know. Explain to us what the well is, please. Sure. The well is the judge is sitting on the bench and the lawyers are sitting at a table and then the jurors are in the box. The well is the area in front of the judge and in front of the lawyers facing the judge. So all that space in front of the judge and in front of the lawyers. And then, of course, there's the witness box, which is usually right next to the judge that's presiding over the trial. Okay. Now, going off what you said about being respectful in court, let's talk about dealing with opposing counsel. And I'm curious about your thoughts on the line between being the best advocate you can be for your client versus being a jerk, which will probably backfire on you. Did you want to take that first, Barbara? Yes, I think civility in the courtroom is very important, and I think it's really important because, one, as lawyers, we have a duty to be ethical. We have a duty to the court, a duty of being credible in front of the judge, in front of the jury, in front of our clients, and in front of anybody else, really, that's in the courtroom. So I think civility is is significant. Um, I'm not suggesting that you should cave against a opposing attorney. I think you have to fight the good fight. But I think you can do it in a way with civility and with class and with dignity. How do you deal with an opposing counsel who's trying to intimidate you because of your inexperience? The way you deal with anyone who is being disrespectful of you. For me, it's you just let it roll off your shoulders. There's a lot about being a lawyer, whether you're experienced or inexperienced, that you just have to let roll off your shoulders. You know, if if your mom didn't teach you to be kind by the age 10, you're not going to learn it in law school, and, and you're not going to take advice from other people about it. And the world uh, has plenty of people who are unkind. Some of them go to law school and graduate. You, you'll find that most lawyers, whether doing civil litigation or criminal litigation are very kind to one another. There's a part of being a trial lawyer that requires acting, but method acting should only commence once you're in the ring. You, you can't put yourself in the mood for the trial by hating your opponent 
you're, you're going to do yourself and your client a disservice, and the judge is going to know, and it's going to reflect badly on you. May I just point out, I, I think that a belligerent and overly aggressive attitude, unfortunately, is sometimes an occupational hazard for the younger lawyer, which is what we're talking about now. That lawyer that's going into their first trial does not want to be intimidated and uh, feels a little insecure and is not going to let anybody push him or her around and certainly needs to show their client that they're not going to be pushed around. And while I understand that, that that's all the wrong instinct, um, you're going to get the most, even if you think about it in a completely self-serving way, which is not what I'm suggesting, but you know, payback is hell. And the best way to be a good lawyer and the best way to make your first trial go smoothly uh, and every trial go as smoothly as possible is to be professional and courteous to opposing counsel at all times. And that's just, you know, as Steve says, it's a way to live your life, but it also uh, inures greatly to your benefit as a lawyer because what you put out is what you get back. That's and perfect. showing professional courtesies to opposing counsel saves your client money. Yes. And it makes your case go more smoothly, and it gets you what you and your client need. Um, so, go ahead. Oh, I see. I'm curious in terms of strategy or reading people. I know as a reporter, if someone is uncourteous um, being interviewed, oftentimes it's because they have something to hide or they're uncomfortable. And I'm curious if you have an opposing counsel who's not very courteous, is perhaps that a sign of weakness? Yeah, and let me talk to that for a moment. You know, whenever young lawyers are going to be trying cases or in the courtroom fighting motions, there's always going to be obstreperous opposing counsels. Many times that type of behavior really um, goes to the credibility of the lawyer. So if the lawyer is acting out and, you know, speaking with a fire mouth, it doesn't mean that the young lawyer should return that fire. In fact, the more civil and the more well-spoken the younger lawyer is, the more the credibility of the very difficult lawyer is judged by the jury or the judge. So the calmer, the more courteous you are, that benefits you in so many ways. Okay. Let's switch gears a bit here. Um, I wanted to ask all of you about thinking on your feet during trial for when things come up you didn't expect. What kind of advice do you have on that? Steve, do you want to take that question first? Sure. It's called thinking on your feet for a reason. It's you're on your feet. And when it's your opportunity to ask questions in the courtroom, you ought to be on your feet. I've seen too many young lawyers sit in their chair uh, this was a difficulty that I had when I first started out. I was so nervous about doing trials. I was nervous about walking around the courtroom. And it was a real effort for me to stand and walk around the courtroom. But at a minimum, I stand to ask questions. One of the federal judges here in Madison uh, had a practice of always speaking with the jury after they'd reached a verdict. And one of the things that she got back in the feedback consistently, jury after jury, was that they thought that lawyers were disrespect, disrespectful of the court when they didn't stand to ask questions. So we call it thinking on your feet because it's literally what you're doing. When I first moved from doing appellate work into trial work, one of the appellate judges took me to lunch one day and he said, 
you're not going to understand this now, but you will later. He said, never write down your questions. Because if you ask the question you've written down, and there's an objection, and it's sustained, and you're looking at your notes, all you're going to see is the objectionable question. He told me, write down the answers you want to elicit. Uh, and that was good advice, because I stand there, and if there's an objection, I think on my feet. Here's the point that I want to make through this witness. How can I rephrase it? Hmm. Jim, what do you think uh, about that? Did you write down your well, questions and we were going to do a cross? Yes, I write down every question. <laughs> um, and I recognize and I recognize that I'm going but, – but like Steve says – I never wed myself to a script, and we can talk about this later in opening and closing as well, should you write them or should you not write them. I write everything. I write them four or five times. I'll write my questions for a witness four or five times and tweak them and and think about certain ways in which I want to phrase some questions on cross-examination. The phrasing of a question may be very important, but I don't wed myself to that script. But more to your question of thinking on your feet, I don't know how one prepares oneself to think on their feet other than to prepare, prepare, Prepare. Know your case. Know the other side's case as well as you possibly can. You can anticipate objections. I'm an idiot when it comes to the evidence code and have been for 30 years, and so when I go to trial, I have just a little separate three-ring binder of evidentiary objections that I think may come up, evidentiary objections that I may want to make, but also evidentiary objections that may come up and how I might respond to them. I think of what might the opposing counsel object to this particular line of questioning, and how will I respond to that if the objection, even though I think it may be ill-founded, if the judge disagrees with me, how am I going to deal with that? So you try to anticipate ahead of time, but thinking on your feet means you're being thrown that unanticipated thing that you didn't expect. And the best way to think on your feet, I think, the better you know the case, the better you're going to be dealing with unanticipated things that a witness may say or that may come up. Um, the, the better you know your case, the better you know the other side's case, the better you're going to be at thinking on your feet. I think I agree, that Steve That's... really hit the nail on the head here, but um, I just want to follow up on that because in answer to your question about thinking on your feet advocacy, there are things that you can control in the courtroom. And as Steve just talked about the evidentiary issues, if you are prepared to admit evidence in a way that is organized, if you know how to admit evidence through memorizing your litanies, if you are prepared in a way that you know your case inside out, control the things that you can in court and the things that you can't know your case well enough to be able to react accordingly. Well, let me ask you this, Barbara, in terms of this prepare, prepare, prepare. Is that old cliche question, should you ever ask a question you don't know the answer to? Perhaps it's worth it to take that risk. What do you think? Uh, well, I can only speak to my own experience and what I teach here. And um, having asked a question I did not know the answer to during a very serious rape trial, I won that case. However, I always would go and talk to the judge afterwards and the judge said to me Barbara you asked a question you didn't know the answer to why did you do that and I said your honor I, I basically boxed him into it and I felt that you know it wasn't going to matter and as the judge pointed out to me Barbara it didn't matter in this case but it may in another one because if the witness had given you the wrong answer 
you did not have a signed statement that you could impeach the witness with. So why would you possibly take the chance of answer, asking a question you didn't know the answer to? So from that wisdom, uh, I am certainly on the side that I would never ask the question if I didn't know the answer, and I learned the hard way. Stephen, Jim, what do you think? Well, uh, this is Jim. I I'd agree with that, except I'm sure Barbara would concede that we never say never yeah, in trial work. <laughs> but I would agree with her that I would say to any young or new lawyers, uh, most often, almost never do you want to ask a question or the answer to. But I found myself maybe in every trial or at least every other trial maybe having that urge to ask it and thinking through, okay, what happens if I get the wrong answer, and doing it anyway because I've analyzed my risk-benefit. I've done the risk-benefit analysis, and I think even if I get the wrong answer, I, I can't think of an example, but maybe he's gonna, he or she, the witness, is going to look uh, – is going to lose credibility if they give me the answer I don't want. So I, I think there are exceptions to the rule, and if you just say to a lawyer, never do that, they may miss an opportunity where you could actually score some points even though you're not exactly sure what the answer is going to be. You know, you're both correct, but you're both correct. <laughs> this is the part where if you watch a program like some young people do on MTV, what was the program, Jackass, that starts mm -hmm. with a disclaimer, kids, don't try this at home. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's the disclaimer we're giving with this. That right. Don't try this at home. You've just heard stories about how with preparation and planning, but I'm going to tell you also with experience, there may come a time in your life where you feel I can ask this question, but it's not, the, it's not a time that comes without preparation, planning, and experience. So given that this is talking to lawyers today who are having their first trial, kids, don't try this at home. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful way to do it. You know what? Come on back in 10 years, and then we'll revisit it. Right. Um, that, let's go back to, Jim, you were talking about how you were prepared and you bring your evidence uh, code with you. How do you stay organized during trial with all the messiness and uncertainty that usually goes with trials? Well, it used to be that three-ring three binders saved my life um, and my career. And now it, it has more to do with a laptop and electronics and a three-ring binder. But um, organization is really, really important for that young lawyer going into their first trial to have everything organized in a way that makes them the most comfortable to be able to access it. Um, you know, of course, I have my trial notebooks with each witness's separate tab and the exhibits I'm going to use with that particular witness and the questions and blah, blah, blah. And I have a law notebook for all the law that may come up during the course of the trial that I'm going to want to be able to put my hands on quickly. And that evidence notebook, it's not the code section book, um, although uh, usually there's one of those in the courtroom, but if not, I'll drag one along. But it's a three-ring binder that I've hole-punched the evidence code sections that I think are going to relate to my case and the issues that may come up in my trial. So organization, I think the only thing more important than preparation for the new lawyer or any lawyer going into trial is organization. You can't be too prepared and you can never be too organized. Yeah, that is a great comment. And, and one thing that I want to point out to new lawyers trying their first case is 
organization is just not about your ability to present the case, but organization goes to the lawyer's credibility because the jurors are looking at the lawyer's table. And if the lawyer's table is sort of sloppy and there's papers all over the place and the lawyer's looking through papers and can't find what they need, well, then the jury's saying this person isn't organized, they don't really know their case, they're sloppy, you know, it's a mess. So jurors look at everything that the lawyers do from the moment they enter the courtroom until the moment they walk out of that courtroom. So be aware of that. I, I agree with that completely. The jurors have x-ray eyes, and, and and you have to remember, too, that most trials are boring. And, you know, it's, when I lecture on evidence, I always say there's only one true objection in the courtroom, and that's objection boring. And <laughs> they really are boring. And jurors' eyes wander, and they blame lawyers when things get too boring. And they will always blame the disorganized lawyer for wasting their time, whether it's true or not. So what you said about juries seeing this and it affecting their perception is absolutely true. Now, you don't get prepared in order to impress the jury. You get prepared to win your case, which involves at times impressing the jury. But you certainly don't want to give them reason to fault you. And by consequence, your client. Steve is still right about the boring aspect of trial, and that's why I write down at the top of my notes for my closing argument and my opening statement in particular, brevity is the soul of clarity. I'm so seldom able to adhere to that, but that's my goal, and that's why I write it at the top of my closing argument and I write it at the top of my opening to remind myself I don't have to beat it into their heads 15 times. Full of clarity. You're absolutely right. Now, and you guys, when you spoke and you mentioned young lawyers, I'm curious. When you see people who are not necessarily young lawyers, but they're litigators, and because of the way the world has changed, they just haven't tried a case, and they finally get to you, say, ten years out. Do you see common mistakes with that that, that group of folks that maybe hasn't had a chance to try a case until they're a bit out and more familiar with the law? Well, this is Jim. I, I, uh-huh. There's two things that come to my mind immediately, and one is just kind of hyper-technical, I guess, and I'm sure it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but I'm amazed that people that are walking into a courtroom to try a case don't know how to cross-examine using a deposition. And I, I think that's something that frustrates the heck out of judges. Can you expand on that a bit for us, by what you mean? Starting with a deposition instead of starting with a question you know, you don't use a question to impeach a witness about his testimony until you have the testimony. Did you run through the red light? No. Would you please refer to your deposition at page 65, blah, 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 where I asked you, did you run through the red light? You said yes. However, it's handled in a particular courtroom. But, but I've seen guys try to cross-examine people based on depositions by starting with the deposition. The question is, now, in your deposition, didn't you tell me, you know, that, that – just the wrong way to go about it. And judges in California are very particular about attorneys approaching the witness and handing the deposition and then wanting to debate giving the witness an opportunity to respond as to why he he answered he or she answered the question that way. You don't give them the opportunity. You use the deposition to slam the door on them. You read the question, 
On page 57, line 6, I asked blah, 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 and you answered blah, 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 and you read it. Was that the question I asked and the answer you gave? Yes. Thank you. And then you move on. Yeah, what we're talking about here is really impeachment issues with deposition testimony and how you're going to use deposition testimony during your trial. So there's many different ways to use deposition testimony, but a, but that's a clear description of, you know, the proper way to use deposition testimony to attack the credibility, to impeach a witness, and the improper way to do it. You know, I, I used to teach trial advocacy, and I moved to evidence, and I moved to evidence for one reason, and that was that I was dissatisfied with the way my students had been taught the difference between impeachment with a prior and consistent statement, present recollection refreshed, and past recollection recorded, all of which can involve a deposition, but it's done in a different way. Each has a different protocol. And what Jim has said is absolutely correct about the protocol for impeaching a witness and with, with a deposition, and it is so rare to see a young lawyer or a lawyer really having his first trial do this correctly. And it's, it's worth putting in the time to learn to do it right. Yeah, because I think otherwise it's very confusing to the jury. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what the lawyer's trying to do, and they have no idea where to put this testimony. So that, you know, there's a clear litany of how to impeach somebody with a deposition, and, and I think that Steve and, and Jim spoke to that in, in the way that is real in the courtroom, and it's also effective in front of the jury. Another question, what if you have this trial that's going to go, and, and you're pretty sure you're going to lose it? How do you handle that? Wow, I had a lot of those. I, <laughs> I prosecuted sex crimes. I had a lot of those cases. Uh, how do you handle it? Um, well, first of all, you try, in my case, because I was a prosecutor, you try to plea it out. Uh, but if you can't get a plea and you need to take it in, you do the very best job that you can do and you use all the advocacy skills you have and um, you're hopeful. You have to be hopeful that maybe something will happen and, and the jury will come back in your favor. I think probably all three of us have tried cases that uh, we thought we were going to win and we've lost and ones that we thought we were going to lose and we've won. So you really never know because the jury is, you know, my pop would say, like a can of worms. You open it up and you don't know what's going to pop out. So uh, oh. jurors often surprise you. So you give 100% and you see where it takes you. From the civil side, and there's two ways to look at it from the civil side. From the plaintiff's side, if you've got a case that you, that you think you're going to lose because you get into discovery, you take the depositions, and you find out what you thought was a good-looking case turns out not to be so good-looking. Obviously, you try to settle the case and get out of the thing if you can. If it's really clear to you that it's a loser, you shouldn't prosecute a case that doesn't have any merit. If you're on the defense side, sometimes you don't have that choice. Of course, you try to settle it if you think you're going to lose it, but if the other side's not going to settle it for a reasonable amount of money, you have to go to trial. So that raises the other issue in civil matters, and that is managing the expectations of your clients. And some young lawyers, I think, make the mistake of, you know, they need the business, they need the client, so they become the cheerleader for the case because that's what the client wants to hear. 
They talk about how great the case is if it's a plaintiff's case or if they're on the defense side, how, you know, this is a slam-dunk defense and we're going to kill them on this and blah, blah, blah. That That's not managing your client's expectations, and that's not doing your client any favors. So you need to start managing the client's expectations from the very beginning. But usually it's difficult to tell how things are going to pan out in any courtroom, but you certainly know a lot more after the discovery is in process and completed through depositions, et cetera. And that's when you need to, you know, revisit the issues with your client and make sure they have a good understanding of what the risk-benefit analysis is going into the courtroom for the trial. So I think on the civil side, the very important thing is to manage the expectations of your clients. And it's no different on the criminal side. The the real question, if if we're giving this podcast for people who are doing their first trial or trials, isn't what do you do when you have a, a, a case that you know you're going to lose as much as it is how do you know when you have a case that you may lose or are Very true. to lose. Uh, and, and what Jim just said about not having the perspective of experience to, to help answer that question is, is what really makes it tough. And And so what I urge young lawyers to do is get feedback and not simply from other lawyers. In preparing your case, you kind of take the show on the road. When you go over to a friend's house for dinner and they're not a lawyer or you go out for drinks or do something social with them and they say, hey, what are you working on? This is your opportunity to test your theories of the case and to lay it out in front of someone who's never heard about it before. And believe me, if you don't have a leg to stand on, they're going to let you know one way or another. And that's how you gain the perspective to know whether you have a case that you're going to lose. And may I follow up on one other thing with what Steve said, which I think is is so important, and that is, you know, in this high-tech, fancy world here of of high-level civil litigation, I keep hearing about focus groups and focus groups, and, you know, you got to you got to hire all these people and do all these focus groups and figure out what your jury is going to do. Steve is telling us how we have been doing focus groups since we, before we walked into our first trial, hopefully, and that is talking to your grandmother or your spouse or your friend or your buddy, non-lawyers. That's the cheapest focus group you can get. That's how to get, because we're all advocates and we get wrapped up in our own cases, and we may not see them as objectively as we should. So running your cases by non-lawyer other people uh, outside the legal profession is uh, great and extremely inexpensive. As Steve says, maybe it costs you a, a, a pint of beer to buy your buddy, but um, uh, an extremely effective way of getting a little objectivity in, in insight into your case. Yeah, and the key there is they have to be non-legal people. So, you know, no law clerks or legal secretaries. You really want somebody that is objective and away from the practice of law. Okay, and that's everything that I have for you today. I want to thank you all so much for your time. I think this was a great discussion. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com.